The sermon text this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, Christianity is a, it's a supernatural religion. Christianity is a supernatural religion. Even though we're in a battle, and we saw that last week, we're in a battle. We're going to win, uh, but we're in a battle. We heard last week the great apostle Paul, you know, cry out in desperation. You know, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He does that which he doesn't want to do. He doesn't do that which he wants to do. And yet he followed it with this great cry of delight. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what's he thanking God for? Well, I think Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a high watermark in Scripture. I mean, some have called it the greatest chapter in the Bible. If you can't be happy in Romans 8, I think you could make Eeyore like the good humor man. I mean, this is a chapter for the struggler. This is an incredible chapter to provide hope. It begins with a promise of God. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. It ends with a promise. You will never be separated from God through Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, it's bookended by just hope for us. It's a chapter that we meet the Holy Spirit in, in big fashion. I think six times you see the Spirit of God in the first seven chapters and, and 20 times, close to 20 times in this chapter alone, the Holy Spirit leading us to that supernatural life, which is the Christian life. I want to try to build these eight verses around three things. First, I want to remind you of a truth that you're called to live by, a truth that you're called to live by. And that's in verse 1. It's a clear truth that each of us have to live by in this Christian life. And then secondly, that there are reasons to rest on this truth. There are reasons that he's going to give us. These are verses 2 and 3. Reasons, clear reasons that you can build a house on. And then, and then there's a purpose to pursue. There is a purpose in this gift of salvation. And we're going to see that in verses 4 to 8, a purpose. So I'm just going to build it around those three things, a, a, a truth to live by, reasons to rest on, and, and a purpose to pursue. Okay, so the truth to live by. Look with me in verse 1, because he says, um, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So he's telling us about a new freedom that we have, a freedom 
from condemnation. Uh, therefore, he begins with, now, therefore, you always look behind it, right? What's he pulling forward? I think he's probably pulling forward the whole book to this point. You know, in chapter 118, we hear about this gospel that has power to save, this gospel, and then he begins to unpack. You know, Paul, remember, is introducing himself to the church in Rome, and he, he's going to go through there on his continuing missionary work, and so he's, he's introducing himself. This is the gospel we believe. But then he begins to unpack it, really the first, uh, for the second half of chapter 1, all the way through uh, midpoint of chapter 3, he's explaining the need that we have for salvation. We have a need to be saved, all of us, Jew, Gentile, male, female, young, old, all of us fall short of God's glory. We're all under his condemnation. We need it. And then, boom, chapter 3 comes along, and we're introduced to the way of salvation, Jesus. He's a propitiation. He's borne our sin and our shame, and he's reconciled us to God. And then we, we talk about what faith looks like in chapter 4. And then, and then 5, Paul begins to unpack this idea of justification. We're declared innocent. And 5, 6, and 7, it's how do we live as these innocent yet still struggling Christians. And so we come to chapter 8, verse 1, therefore. In other words, with all of that behind us, no condemnation. No condemnation. In fact, the word no, that little Greek word, it's put in the front of the sentence. It's the first word which intensifies its meaning. And he used a certain word that has an intensified meaning. Like, no, no way. No way will you face condemnation. Remember what condemnation is? It's being liable for transgressing law. But no way do you face that condemnation. There is no condemnation. The charges are dropped. You're innocent. Free to go. There's no charges that will be brought to you. There's no condemnation. Now, he says, now. There is therefore now no condemnation. You don't wait for three years to kind of get better to hear these words. You don't have to wait to the end of your life to wonder, how am I doing? Uh, what will God say to me in the end? It's not like that final exam where you need to get a certain grade to pass and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. He says, now there is no condemnation. It's not partly no condemnation. It's not mostly no It's entirely, completely no condemnation. This incredible promise to say to a people, now there is, you have, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. God will not hold you in judgment. In Christ. It, it is an exclusive group. Not entered because you're so much better than everyone else. But because you're so much needy. Needier. And you know it. In Christ. What's that mean? Well, we've been talking about this in chapter 6 and 7. He gave us those pictures of what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be united to Christ. Remember back in chapter 6, baptism. You go down into the water. You're going into Christ. It's a picture of a union. You see the same thing with slavery. You know, when you're no longer a slave of sin, but you're a slave to God, there's a new union forged. Or even in the first part of chapter 7, he used the analogy of marriage. What is marriage? It's a union, the two becoming one. That's what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ means there is no condemnation. Boy, 
There's no day ahead that you need to dread. It's been paid for. Charles Spurgeon, the London preacher, said these words. He says, if our debt's paid, it was paid. There is an end to it. A second payment cannot be demanded. But I, I, I hope when you hear me, uh, those of you in particular that have the tendency, those of you in Christ that have the tendency to, to drag with you and to keep with you the foreboding sense of dread over your sin and God, I hope these words are like a cool glass of water on a hot day for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is a truth we have to live by. It, it sustains us. Uh, this freedom removes the fear of judgment. Hey, if you're a struggler and if you're a straggler in the faith, this is hope for us. Listen, you, you know the, the kid, and maybe this was an experience that you had, you did something wrong and you knew you were going to be paying for it. You just knew the wrath of dad was coming. And so you took off. And, and for me, that meant running to the end of the, the property line because I got a little scared of being too far away from the house. But I, I'd run to the end of the property line, property line and I'd wait there and I'd wait and I'm thinking, I got to wait until it's safe to go back home. I may be out here for years, but I'm going to wait until it's safe to go back home. That's how you feel about God. You know, we, we, we feel like here we are Christians and then we, then we sin and, and I can't go back. I gotta, I gotta read my Bible more. I gotta pray more. I gotta do some acts of kindness so that I can go back. And I'm telling you, this truth to live by—it's safe to go home. Prodigals go home. Those strugglers and stragglers go home. There's no condemnation. I think we often think this idea that if I sin today, I'm back in the condemnation box. I'm back in the bad boy box. And and God's—that's not the case. There's no condemnation. What, maybe in your mind you're thinking, well, what if I do if I sin? I mean, I mean, I do sin every day. And I'd say repent. Confess your sins. Listen, we've already been given freedom to do this. The Apostle John in his first letter said, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And the truth of God is not in you. That is us in this life of flesh. But confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You're, you're not going to be condemned. Confess. Ask God for help. Harness a brother or sister next to you in this church and, and, and ask them to walk with you in this life. We don't want to battle alone. We don't want to go into the battle alone. We want brothers and sisters with us. But don't carry the guilt with you. New Testament scholar... Robert Mount said these words, he says, to insist on feeling guilty is but another way of insisting on helping God with our, with our salvation. You know, sometimes I, I've heard people say to me, well, I know God can forgive me, but I, I just can't forgive myself. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, do you have a higher righteousness, a standard of righteousness than God? Are, are you saying to God, well, well you're just... You know, you're able to forgive, but I'm just expecting too much. You know, that, that I have a higher standard that I have to meet to be forgiven. We don't want to walk with guilt. The truth to live by, the Christian life is a supernatural life, and it begins by understanding 
that when you see God, it's going to be good for those of you in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones was another preacher next century in London at Westminster Chapel, and he wrote these words. It's very important. He, he gives us a great illustration here to help us understand how we, can, how we can actually walk out this Christian life and not fear dread. He says this, Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse, that is 8.1. He said, let me put it in the form of an illustration. The difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing the laws of, of the state and a husband who has done something he should not have done in his relationship with his wife. He's not breaking the law. He is wounding the heart of his wife. That's the difference. It's not a legal matter. It's a matter of personal relationship and love. The man doesn't cease to be the husband. Law doesn't come into the matter at all. In a sense, it's now something much worse than legal condemnation. I'd rather offend against the law of the land objectively outside of me than hurt someone whom I love. You've sinned, of course, but you've sinned against love. You may and you should feel ashamed, but you should not feel condemnation because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. That's the Christian. So when we sin, we, we have offended God. We've offended love. But we haven't stopped being a son or daughter. We haven't lost our citizenship in heaven. We haven't lost our sonship or daughtership. We have offended God. We repent of that. But we don't lose being his son or being his daughter. That's the way we live this supernatural life. It's a truth to live by. But you also don't need to fear anymore this death. This, and I'm speaking about the second death here. That death when you open your eyes after death. That you don't have to fear that now with no condemnation. I like to ask people, particularly non-Christians, uh, I like to try to get a conversation from a temporal, physical level to more of a transcendent level. I'll, I'll often ask people, what do you think about your own death? You know, what do you think happens? Just trying to get a conversation started. And, and a lot of times people try to laugh it off. They're kind of funny about it, like the Woody Allen, you know, the I'm not really worried about death. I just don't want to be there when it happens kind of thing. Some people laugh it off and they joke it off. Uh, others, you know, it's that good old American optimism. Well, I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be great. It's going to be adventure. It's going to be a new frontier that we're going to establish. And I was like, any basis for the thought that you have? I mean, do you create a lot of things with your thoughts? You know, I'm thinking an ice cream cone. Has one appeared in your hand? You know, people just have this optimism about what they think. But most people, I find, they're uncertain. They're a little nervous. They're a little concerned. They say, I'm not sure. I, I don't know what he's going to do. I, I don't know if I've done enough. But for you, you don't fear that. You know that there is now no condemnation for you. You know that now. So one, one kind of author made it analogous to going to the, you know, the airport and going to the gate. And you see the people. There's a difference, right, between the people that are on standby. They're nervous. They're looking at their watch. They're right by the gate. They're wanting to check to make you get the people that with the boarding pass, they got their seat. I mean, they're confirmed. It's established. They're just, I don't know, they're flipping through the phone. They're, they're reading... They're reading a magazine, they're drinking coffee, they're talking to their friends, they're relaxed, they're sitting, they're not nervous, the other ones are. Oh, we're waiting like they are, but we're not worrying. 
that's the difference. We're waiting. Yes, we are. We're waiting. All of us are, because all of us are in this life for a short time, but we're not worrying, and that's the difference. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you know, what do you do with the idea of this God who does bring judgment? You know, many times we, we struggle. People will raise, and perhaps you feel this way. Well, how can God be a God of love and be a God of judgment? That, that, that in the mind of many, they are mutually exclusive. You cannot be a God of love and a God of judgment. But I would ask you to be a God of love. Don't you have to be a God of judgment? So, so imagine that final day. Go with me in your minds all the way to that final day when all the people are before God. And you have thousands, I'm sure millions, of people who have been victimized, abused, treated with massive unfairness and injustice. And, and right now, there are people suffering greatly. Right now, suffering greatly. Tremendous injustices. And on that final day, are there cries for justice going to go unanswered? Will God just turn a blind eye to all the tragedy and the abuse of those in powers of authority or in positions of authority that have abused power and abused people? And God's just going to turn a blind eye? Would that make God loving? No, for God to be loving, he has to be a God of judgment. If God does not judge, then I dare say he's evil, or at least indifferent, or ambivalent or cold. He has to bring judgment. In fact, I wonder, do you understand your sense of being liable to God for not loving, not, not honoring, not being grateful for the breath you draw, for the gifts that you have, for the place that you have in this life, all from a creator that gives you life? For the Christian, for the one in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's a truth we have to live by. But when I say that to you, I know that in our, in our world of meritocracy, in our world of, of nothing good can be free, how old are you before you learn there is no free lunch? And yet we hear a truth like this and we think, it can't be true. There has to be some cost. Nobody gets this good treatment without cost. Well, there's reasons to believe that we do. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. These are the reasons that you have uh, to live by the truth that there is therefore now, there is now, therefore now no condemnation. And, and the reasons are, first, God. God is kind. Look at what it says there in verse 2, that God has done what the law weakened by flesh, was unable to do. God has done this work. Now, let me just remind you of chapter 7. The law is good. The law is good. I, I, I know I bear the risk of being boring by being redundant, but I want you to know the law is good. The law exposes our sin. The law reveals to us that we have fallen short of the, of the glory of God. The law has revealed that all of us have been <clears throat> excuse me, touched by stain of sin. All of us have. But the law cannot save. The law cannot produce righteousness in us. The law doesn't have that power. Why? Because it has been weakened by our flesh. In our flesh, we cannot keep the law, and therefore the law cannot keep us. 
you would think we're without hope, and we were. But God has done it. God has sent forth a son, born in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, God did it. I want you to see that God is the author of salvation. I want you to see that salvation rests upon God. God has initiated this plan. God's not in heaven wringing his hands, wondering how the plan's going to turn out, wondering who's going to make it and who's not going to make it. It's his plan. He's the one that sent the Son. And he sent the Son because he's ordained that people are saved. He's done the work. He's not concerned how it's going to turn out. God is the author of salvation. Where is God in your understanding of salvation? Is he dead center in it? Is he the one leading it? Is he the one driving it? Is he the one that's planned it? Is he the one waiting for it to come to its full bloom? That's who God is. This is a reason why we can say there is there, therefore now no condemnation. But not just God, but look at the Son. Uh, the Son was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. Look at Jesus for a minute with me. He wasn't born in sinful flesh because he had no sin. He wasn't born in the likeness of flesh because that would make it appear that he came among us. But he really wasn't like us. No, he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh, which means that he identified us with us. He became like us in every way. This is the incarnation, that he has come among us. God has sent his very own son to be just like us, but to come not just to be in the likeness of sinful flesh. Look in the text, it says, and for sin. And that little phrase implies sin offering. So, so let your mind drift back to the Old Testament. All those offerings, those sacrifices, all those sacrifices were given because people couldn't stand before God. That They needed one to, to, to pay the price of their sin. And so here Jesus comes as a sin offering. He comes to bear in himself our sin to be judged that we could pass out of condemnation. This is why Paul calls Jesus a curse. He's a curse in Galatians 3. Let me read the scripture for you. He says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one, no one in here. So if you think for a shred of a second that, well, I'm really getting better, and if I just try harder, God will say, yes, well done, my good and faithful servant. He says, no one. I don't think there's a lot in that group of no one. I think there's no one. He says, no one will be justified before God for the law. For the righteousness shall live by faith. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I'll get to that in a minute. I just want to park for one second on Jesus being an offering for us. The reason the believer is not condemned, Douglas Moo says, is because Christ, because in Christ, sin is condemned. This is what we spoke about last week. This is propitiation, that Christ bore the wrath of God, all of God's judgment, resulting in him being favorable to us. 
So your Savior is Christ. So God the Father has sent the Son, Jesus. This is why. This is another reason why we will pass out of condemnation. But the third reason is the Spirit. Look with me back in verse 2 where he says, The Spirit of the law has set us, those in Christ, free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit of God. This is the Spirit of God. You know, Jesus said in John 14 and 16 that another comforter would come. And this comforter will convict the world of sin and unrighteousness. This is what Jesus Christ, this is what the Spirit has come to do. To apply the work that the Son has accomplished into our hearts. The Spirit has come to unite us to Christ. So just like the Spirit of God hovered over Mary, and the Spirit joined flesh to the Son and made them one. So he joins us to Christ. The Spirit brings us into unity with Christ so that all the benefits of Christ are now ours. All the work of Christ, all the good, that it is now ours. We're now one with Christ. That's the agency of the Spirit. The Spirit does that work. You don't wake up one day and say, I believe in Jesus. The Spirit draws you to himself and binds you to Christ. The reason that we can live by this truth of never facing condemnation. It's a promise from the entire Godhead. God the Father brings forth a plan, sends the Son. Son accomplishes a work cannot be done by anyone. And the Spirit comes and unites us with the Son so that now we are one. The assurance. See, you won't see the word Trinity in the Bible, but you will see the Trinity in the Bible, and you see it right here. The assurance of our passing through condemnation is rooted in the triune God, the community of God bringing forth salvation for us. And the aim of this work is to deal with our sin. <clears throat> it's not to educate us. It's not to make us better, although we will be. It's not for that. It's to bring forth the Son to pay for our sins. We don't want to think about Jesus as a moralist, a good teacher, a kind man. We'd like to have him as a neighbor. That's not his role. His role was to come and bear sin to save us. <clears throat> In fact, that's really what unites all of us here. You know, we're, Many of us are from various nations from this world, and yet we're all the same. We're all the same in the sense that we have fallen way short of God, and we need this Jesus. You know, this is how we become a Christian. If you're not a Christian, the, the, the way the church teaches you move from darkness to light and you move from those outside of Christ to those in Christ is through faith in Christ. And if you feel drawn to do this, then that is the evidence of the Spirit of God pulling you to unite you to the Son. So you have this text, this glorious passage of Scripture, we have a truth to live by. There is therefore now no condemnation. And you have reasons to hope in that. Hope in that more than you have to hope in waking up tomorrow, frankly. You have God the Father bringing forth the Son who has brought forth the Spirit uniting us to God. But what's the purpose? Is it just to give us this kind of insurance card so when our day comes we'll be in good shape? Is it just to kind of provide, okay, I did it, I walked the front, I got baptized? 
No, you, you see the purpose of it in verse 4. In verse 4, the purpose of this salvation is to be holy. It's to be changed. It's to be made new. <clears throat> we don't just, in this church, focus on what God did for us. We focus on what God is doing for us, and we'll see this through the Spirit. God is making men and women new through faith. Look in verse 4, because it's kind of a, a little bit of a challenging verse to interpret. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Some people think verse 4 means that, um, that God's Spirit actually helps us to keep the requirements of the law. Uh, some people that I respect greatly think that. I, I don't. I don't think that's the case. I think uh, we're free from the law back in 6 and 7. And we see Paul give an explanation about what life is like at the end of chapter 7. He didn't seem to be speaking about keeping the requirements of the law when he spoke about doing that which he didn't want to do and not doing that which he wanted to do. I think this means Jesus, because Jesus is the antecedent. He's right before that by his own son and likeness of flesh and uh, sinful flesh and sin, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So I think Christ came and lived the law perfectly, satisfying the, the, the requirements of God. And now us in union with him, it is as if we have fulfilled the requirements of the law. <clears throat> I think even Jesus said, I've come to fulfill all righteousness, he said in Matthew 3. So does this mean then as Christians that we're lawless? that we just don't worry about how to live, that we, listen, we got Jesus on our team, so every game's a W. We're going to win. Uh, that isn't it. We're not lawless Christians. No, we're, we're obedient. And, and the hope is found in this verse. He says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're walking according to the Spirit now. See, what happens in conversion is that God takes out a heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh by the Spirit. Remember, this is what God always wanted to do. Uh, do you realize that back in Ezekiel 36, uh, in the midst of the, the trouble of Israel, failing to live according to God's law, God made a promise. And he made this promise that the Spirit of God, and there was this scene, a valley of dry bones. You can imagine just... Thousands of skeletons everywhere, just dead bones everywhere. And, and then Ezekiel is given a vision, and the Spirit of God comes. And all of a sudden, the bones have flesh and sinew, and they grow up, and they're given life. These, this valley of dead bones now becomes a valley of living souls. That's what God does for us through the power of the Spirit when we move in faith towards Christ. He gives life to us so that now we can live obediently, not perfectly, but we're pursuing it more and more and more by his spirit. He's given us a new mind to understand God, to understand his law. Jeremiah promised in the 31st chapter, God would write his law upon our hearts. Intuitively, we know. We know and we seek the power of the spirit that dwells within us to begin walking. That's the call. So this, this truth to live by, which is that there is therefore now no condemnation, is grounded in the salvation work of God, leading us now to be filled with the Spirit 
to live holy lives. We're to strive to be holy. You don't become holy floating down the lazy river. You strive to be holy, and you can strive now effectively because the Spirit of God dwells within us, which we're going to see next week in verse 9. You know that you belong to the Spirit because he dwells in you. Now, what Paul does in verses 5 to 8 is he shows us a picture of two people. There are only two people in the world. There are only two types of people. There are not three. I know we always want three. You know, we always want that middle point just because if I'm not really there and I'm not really there, I'm probably right in the middle. That's not the case here. He only gives two types of people. Those who have set their mind on the things of the flesh, that is the world, it's not skin and bone, it's sinful nature, and those who have set their mind on the spirit. Those are the two types of people that he begins to speak. He's not even calling us to be one or the other. He's just explaining the reality of God's creation. You are either of the flesh with your mind set on the flesh, or you're of the spirit with your mind set on the spirit. Now, those people of the flesh are identified as such, right? Their, their hearts are set. That, that word set means they're thinking. That's the way they think. They think along the things of the flesh. What would that be? Well, it would mean that you have, uh, you have embraced the assumptions of the world, the values, the distinctions, the joys, the satisfactions of the world. You, you've, taken your, you've taken your kind of direction for life from the world. Uh, you've looked at saviors provided whether it's a, a having a great job, that is leading you on the path to your heaven, or to having financial security, or to being married, or, 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 to, or to rising in popularity, or position within a corporation. We have, all these, we have all these functional gods out before us. These are the things that make you happy. Those are the things of the flesh. That's one type of person in the world. You know them, we all know them. It may have been you. It may, in fact, be you right now. That your life, if you were to give a report card on your life, it would be driven by how much you've accomplished or done or enjoyed of this world. And he says clearly that it's hostility to God. I don't mean an open defiance before God, like you're raising your fist to him. It can be ambivalence. God has created us to to enjoy him, to honor him, to be grateful to him. And you've lived a life largely apart from God, almost not even thinking about him. Your mind's not set on him. It's set on, I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to achieve this, and I got to go here. And, and that will lead to death. You cannot please God from that position. Those are outside of Christ. But Paul doesn't think this way of the Roman Christians. He thinks that they've set their mind on the spirit. They've set their mind on the Spirit. That doesn't mean that you're a theological brainiac. It doesn't mean that you're just really religious. It means that your mind is moving towards God. You think about being adopted, which will be next week. You think about the power of the Spirit in prayer. You think about the power of God holding you up even in the midst of trials. You marvel over your justification. You rejoice over your adoption. That your mind is increasingly aware and filled and finds joy 
in all that God has done for us, that your mind goes there. That's evidence that the Spirit dwells within you. Your mind goes to trials come. You run to God. You don't have to figure out which way should I go. You go to God. You may be faulting oftentimes and failing, but then you, pick, you find yourself still drifting back to God. You move to God. A mind set on the Spirit leads to life and peace, whereas the mind set on the things of the flesh is hostility and enmity with God. The mind set on the Spirit is peace with God. Peace, why? Because there's no condemnation that you'll face. So this purpose to pursue, I, I hope you realize that that if you're here today and you're in Christ, the Spirit of God is essential for you to grow. Uh, there is no more important person to understand than the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. That the Spirit takes out that heart of stone to put in a heart of flesh, and then he works in that heart to lead us to holiness. And it's, it's a work. It is a work. It's not a salvific work, but it's a sanctifying work. God does the work of justification. We engage with God in the work of sanctification. But not just that. I hope you understand, too, in relationship to this, what to pursue, is do you understand the relationship between thinking and doing? The mind set leads to a life doing. What do you think about? You know, a mindset has eternal consequences. Archbishop Anglican Church, William Temple said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. What do you do with your solitude? When you're sitting and your mind is free to roam, where does it go? To what do you give most amount of your thought? What preoccupies your mind? What concerns you most? If you're going to fret, what will it be over? If you're going to worry, who will it be in regard to? If you find great happiness, what's the object of it? The mind set on the spirit leads to life and peace. That's what I want for us. You know, there's a truth to live by. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Uh, the reasons that you can rest in that, those of you in Christ, is because God the Father has sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and the Spirit has applied that to us so that now he empowers us to live uh, according to the Spirit. Friends, this is uh, a chapter of great, great hope. If you're here today and you're uncertain about where you are with God, I would ask you just to speak with the person next to you, a member of this church. They would be well able to speak to you about how to be reconciled to God, how to be in Christ. And for those of you in Christ, would you rejoice with me? This is just incredible. The thought of God doing this just is mind-bending. Listen to what John Stott said. So then God himself is at the heart of propitiation. It's God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. 
and God himself, who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by burying it in his own self, in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. Therefore, now, for you in Christ, there is no condemnation. We can live a supernatural life. We can live as if we will never be separated from the love of God because of Christ Jesus. This is why the older theologian said, you are living in eternal life right now. Because you'll never experience a moment apart from God's loving care. Let's take a moment and thank God for this. Ask God for his great grace to understand this. Such deep measure.